Tonight's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 10 through 12, and 40 through 43. John 7, 10 through 12, and then 40 through 43. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Thanks, Keith. Good evening, church. It's been quite a day for our family here. So I think a collective deep breath would be good before we begin tonight as we think about an incredibly serious subject, an uh, incredibly heavy subject, a difficult one that we've got to take time to think serious about. Um, we're in the seventh part of our Sunday evening series on foundations. We're talking about foundational principles of Christianity. And really what we're trying to do is shape a worldview that is based upon the Word of God, the revealed Scripture from God. Um, really a worldview is just simply where we are from as humans, what you believe about where we're from, why we're here, what the, what's the purpose of life, why are human beings on earth, what are we supposed to be doing? A worldview also describes what's wrong with the world. What's your answer for evil? When there's evil and wrong and, and bad things that happen, what's your answer for that? And finally, a worldview says, here's how you get things right. And everybody in the world has a worldview. Every one of you has a worldview about why we're here, how we got here, what we should be doing in life. And then why there's something wrong in the world? What is, what is evil and what's wrong with the world? And how do we make things right? Everybody has a worldview. And what matters about our worldview is that our actions, what we do, comes from our beliefs. The way that we respond to things, the way that we speak into things, the way that we think about things, the way that we react and live and work and engage with people all comes out of this core worldview that you have about why we're here, how we got here, what's wrong with the world, and how do we make that right. Everybody has a worldview. And what's been interesting to me is I've evaluated myself, starting first and foremost there and thinking through my own belief system and then also spending time with people who are of the Christian faith, is I've found that a lot of people who call, we call ourselves Christians don't always have a Christian worldview. In fact, we're heavily influenced by our culture, by our society, by um, the country that we live in, our comforts and things that we have that 
we don't always actually have a Christian worldview about the world. We sometimes have a mixture of sort of moralistic, you know, ethics combined with like do betterism, combined with like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get some more education, and just fix yourself up, you know, individualism. That isn't always Christian in the way that we view the world. The Christian worldview found in Scripture is actually um, pretty clear. It's pretty pretty uh, plain. We've walked through it so far. We've answered the question of where we came from, how we got here, and that's from the nature and the person of God. We've answered the question of why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing. That came from the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. What is the purpose of mankind? And then we looked also at what's wrong with the world. Genesis chapter 3, the account of the fall is not just a historical record of what happened to Adam and Eve, but a display of what is wrong with the world. Self-aggrandizement and autonomy. People deciding for themselves to live for themselves what's wrong with the world. And what we're in the throes of right now is answering, what does it take to make that right? If we have a purpose, but things have gone wrong, what does it take to make that right? And we started that two weeks ago when Matt presented the theme of redemption. That God, since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, has been working a plan of redemption to bring us back out of the slavery of sin into relationship with Him. We're going to talk about the crux of that tonight. Where it all meets together and is accomplished. And that's in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. The fancy word for this is Christology, which means just the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ, who He was, what He was, what He did, and what He accomplished. And we're going to try to do that pretty simply tonight. But the deal is this. What you actually believe about the person and then the work of Jesus Christ is massively important to your life. I would even say that it is the most important intellectual thing you can do with your mind, heart, and soul. is what you think about Jesus Christ, His work, and who He was as a person. You see, His identity, who He was and what He did, is the rock, the basis for Christianity. When He asked the question to His disciples, Who do you say that I am? Who do you think that I am? Their understanding of who he was was the basis for Christianity. And it's the basis for your Christianity as well. In fact, uh, this question was the foremost question for the first 700 years of the early church history. From the time in which Jesus ascended for the first 700 years of church history, every major church council, ecumenical council, that came together came because there was a heresy about the identity, the person, or the work of Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. There were seven councils that came together from Nicaea to Ephesus and forward that came answering the question of who is Jesus? What was He? What was his substance and what did he do and what did he accomplish? They were trying to answer that question every time they were dealing with the heresies of who Jesus was. And so today, um, I don't really feel like we need to go into all of that history t- tonight uh, because I'm not so concerned about uh, the crowd tonight dealing with some of those early church history heresies. I haven't heard many of you talking about Jesus not really having a body, but just kind of a spirit that floated around. I don't know of many of you that believe that. 
I also haven't heard many of you talk about not really believing that Jesus was God, that he was just a good man or a good teacher, or he was less than God. Those are some of the major heresies that the first early church was dealing with. But I will share with you one that greatly concerns me. I believe it is the most prominent heresy that is facing our culture and our generation about Jesus Christ. And that is, we have a Jesus, not just in the spirit, but not in the flesh, or a Jesus that wasn't really God, but we have a Jesus now in our culture that everybody likes. A Jesus that is comfortable. A Jesus that we all actually get along with. And a Jesus that just fits into our lifestyle. I believe that is the most prominent heresy about Jesus Christ that's facing our culture right now and us here. A Jesus that everybody likes. When you survey Scripture, you actually come away seeing this, that you actually cannot like Jesus Christ. When people came to Jesus and they met Jesus, they had one of three responses. Either they hated the man and they wanted to kill him, like like blood-boiling hatred for the man, and they wanted him dead. Or they were scared to death of him, like when he cast the demons into the pigs, they ran off the cliff and the people came out, and they were just scared to death of him. They said, you have to leave. Or they were in love with the man, and they fell before him, and they worshipped him. Do you see what I mean? That there's not a Jesus presented in Scripture that you're allowed to like. That if you met Jesus, you either hated him, were scared of him, or you loved him. And I believe what's crept into our culture is that we've brought in, as we are, a melting pot society, a Jesus who also folds into this melting pot of religion where we like Jesus, we get along with Jesus. He probably hangs out in heaven with Buddha and Confucius and all those guys, and they just love the religions that they created. And that's not true. When you really get into the sayings and the work of Jesus Christ, He either offends you or convicts you, and you love Him and worship Him and run from Him. That's the only thing that He does. And I'm afraid that we have a very, very comfortable, likable, casual Jesus. So tonight what we're going to do is I'd like you to turn your Bibles to John 1. John 7 was just uh, a reading to show you that even in Jesus' day, people were confused about him. They didn't really know what to do with him. And people thought all kinds of things about him. But for the remainder of our time, we're going to look at one verse and one verse only, John 1, 14. Um, I, I really wrestled over what to do tonight. If you looked into my notebook and saw the, the, the notes that I have, it is just a hot mess. Um, it just scattered everywhere. I have historical, and I, I thought about going through all the councils, and I thought about surveying all of the New Testament and seeing what Paul and Peter thought about Jesus. And here's what I decided to do. One verse. We're going to do one verse. There are four points in this verse, okay? I'm going to give them to you before we get into it so you get it. You can see the framework, and then we're going to hang some flesh onto the skeleton together. The four things, the four points from this one verse, each of them have a three-word phrase that go along with it, okay? So let's see if you can follow along with me and give me feedback. If I need to do PowerPoint next time, you can tell me that. Uh, we're going to see in John 1.14, let's read it together and I'll give you the points. In verse 14, <clears throat> excuse me, here's what John says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
That's it. Four points. Number one, we're going to see the form of Jesus, the substance of Him. John says, the Word became flesh. That's the substance of Jesus. Number two, we're going to see the work of Jesus. John says He dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. Number three, we're going to see the response of us. John says we beheld His glory. We beheld His glory. And the last thing we're going to see is the result where He says that we have grace and truth. You got it? The form the work, the response, the result of Jesus Christ. Let's work our way through this. Let's start with the form. John says that the Word became flesh. And what you're going to see as we work through this one verse is that every single word that John chooses is absolutely intentional. In fact, you're going to see that we could talk tonight about John 1.14 for hours upon hours. In fact, even from this verse, we could go to probably every book in the Bible and uncover gems of truth from this, these phrases. And so when John says, the Word became flesh, he's intentional with these words. First of all, he says, the word, word. I believe this was intentional. He's explicitly saying, that Jesus Christ was God. Look in John 1.1. 1, 1, says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the last thing he says is that the Word was God. You can't be any clearer than what John is trying to say. That the Word was God and the Word became flesh. Jesus Christ who became flesh, John is presenting to you as a proposition that He exactly was God. He pre-existed. He became flesh. The Word became flesh. In fact, all of the Gospels, in the very beginning, present this message. John, uh, Matthew has the story of Joseph and Mary in the dream, his name being Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus being born. If you go over to Luke, Luke gives the story of also the angels coming and singing, glory to God in the highest because the Son has come, the Son of God has come to earth. When you look in Mark, he's a little bit quicker in his, but he uses some language from Isaiah where he's talking about John the Baptist, and he says that he's the forerunner, that he's making straight the way of the Lord. Now, in our culture, we hear the word Lord, and we think we're talking about respect. Like, if you call somebody Lord, it's like saying sir or ma'am, and we have respect for them. But what Isaiah was using, if you go back to Isaiah and see that prophecy, where John was saying that he was paving the way for the Lord, that is the covenant name of God. That He was making the way for God to come into the earth. That's what Mark's saying. No bones about it. He was God. Making the way of the Lord. It's also interesting that He chose the word, word. I'm going to do that a lot as we work through this. But I think the word being used there is important. I think John is purposeful about that. And you think about it. It's really difficult to know somebody without hearing from them, without them speaking to you. For example, if you wanted to invite uh, me over for uh, you know, an evening to talk about some things, maybe study the Bible, and you were at your house and you were wondering if you should serve coffee or tea, and maybe you've never spoken to me before, but you've observed me, you've watched me, and so you see in the morning that I make coffee and I drink coffee and I enjoy coffee and I like coffee, and so you might think, well, maybe I should set out some coffee for us. But then also, like I did today, you notice that I drink tea, hot tea. And so you might be sitting in your house saying, 
Okay, I've observed Anthony. He drinks coffee and he drinks tea. And I'm just not sure which one I should sit, should serve for him. Maybe both. Well, how are you going to find out? Well, you dial up my phone and you call me and say hello. And you say, hey, when you come over next Tuesday, I have coffee and tea. Which one would you like me to set out? And when I say to you, or do you like coffee or tea? I say, oh, I don't really like tea. I just drink tea when I don't have coffee. What have my words done for you? They've made it explicitly clear what I am, who I am. That's what the word is. The word, God is making known to you who he is. The heavens declare the glory of God and you walk out into nature. You can observe God. You can stand on the beaches and watch the ocean come in and observe the glory of God. But you won't intimately know the Father until you see Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. The last thing I think is interesting about the word word here is in the original, he says it's the logos. It's where we in our English get the word logic. And, you know, I find it interesting. People want an airtight, logical, philosophical explanation for God and Christianity. We want an argument. We want airtight words that line up together that give an argument to prove that God exists. And what's interesting is God doesn't give us, the, in fact, if you take like philosophy 101, you'll realize that there's no such thing as an airtight, 100% foolproof, word-based argument. There just isn't. Like, I can't prove to you tonight, like if I said that I'm a person that's in a pulpit that's preaching, I can't prove that I'm not a caterpillar, you know, holding a Bible. Because to do that, I would have to use cognitive reasoning ability, and I would have to say that my cognition works. How do I prove that my cognition works? By my cognition. Do you see what I mean? Are you following with me? There's no such thing as an airtight intellectual argument. So what does God give us? An airtight person. You see, the person and work of Jesus Christ is the airtight slam dunk argument for God. In fact, there have been all kinds of people who have declared that they are the Messiah or God in the flesh. There have been people that have done this besides Jesus, a lot of them. And at the same time, there have been massively influential people in the world. There have been all kinds of people. But here's the deal. Everybody that has proclaimed to be God, those that are nearest to them, those that are closest to them, have revealed the true secrets about them that they're not really all that great. But the people that were closest to Jesus Christ, His disciples, His family, when they looked upon Him, when they lived with Him, revealed that, yes, He was God. In fact, if I were here tonight and I said to you, listen, I want to reveal something. Um, God has come to me and He's declared to me that I am deity now and that I don't sin. The quickest way to debunk that myth would be to walk back there and talk to Lisa or my kids. They live with me. They know I can put on a front for you publicly and do my best to present that I don't sin or I don't make any mistakes or I might be you know, able to float in the air and I'm God. But the moment you talk to somebody who's near to me, who lives with me, that'll debunk that quickly, right? Well, Jesus says, I'm God, and then draws in these men from all over and they live with him for three years. And not one of them comes out and says, ah, he wasn't. The one that betrayed him couldn't even handle the fact that he betrayed the Son of God and took his life. He was God. He was the Word. He's the airtight person that proves of God. I've got to go fast if we're going to do this. All right. So the Word became. It means that he was not made. He pre-existed as a person, but not a human, and became a human being. 
Okay? He became flesh. This is a difficult word for us to get clarity in our culture. Oftentimes we hear the word flesh and we think of like sexuality or maybe like rage and anger when we hear that word flesh. But when Paul or John or the other writers in the New Testament were using that word sarks or, or for flesh is what that word was, what they were trying to get at was just the physical. And even farther, not just the physical, but what they meant by flesh was the temporary. The things that are not going to be forever. Jesus went from eternal to temporary. That's what the word flesh means. Like when the Bible says that when you set your mind on the things of the flesh, he's not just talking about it, which it does include just lusting sexually. What he means is that you are overriding your thoughts on eternal things with just thinking about temporary things. Here and now, right now, what I want today, not what is eternal. And so to set your mind on things that are just temporary, the Bible says, is death. It's not going to last forever. That's what the word flesh really means. And so Jesus Christ became temporary. God came into the form of temporary. God became mortal. God became vulnerable. In fact, God became killable. That's unbelievable. That's crazy, isn't it? That our God, that's the only religion in the world that says this, our eternal became temporary, killable. John says in the introduction to his first letter that we touched him with our hands. We saw him with our eyes. We heard him with our ears. And in chapter 4, he says this, anyone that denies that Jesus Christ was in the flesh, that person is the Antichrist. He was in the flesh. But why? Why did he have to do that? Couldn't God just set up some like heavenly tabernacle and kind of offered some sacrifice and said, this is divinely okay with me? Why did the eternal have to become fully like you and me, having a soul, having flesh temporarily? Why did he do that? Well, in every way he became like us. Because what's presented in the Bible is that you and I have become slave to the temporary. We've become slave to the flesh. We become slave to what the Bible calls sin. Sin has enslaved us into the mentality that says, I live for here and now. All I'm worried about because death is on the doorstep is here and now. The power, the sting of death was that you need to maximize here and now because this is all we've got and live for this. How does Pepsi say it? Live for now or live for today. That's all they say, right? We drill everything into the temporary. And so Jesus came into the temporary and went into the ultimate expression of temporary death. And he came back out and he said, I've been into temporary and I've paid your path back to eternal. There was no other way for him to do this for us. And I would submit to you that if he did some eternal salvation thing, some heavenly thing that didn't come in in temporary, your heart wouldn't be drawn to him. you say, I have nothing to do with that. That's another Mount Olympus God kind of thing, but that's not my God. Do you see that? Does that make sense? The eternal became temporary so that you could, be, you could unmask the lie of the temporary to go back to eternal. That's what salvation really is. For further reading on this, check out Hebrews chapter 2, but i got to move. So let's go to the second part. The form of Jesus was deity and humanity. The Word became flesh. The work of Jesus was that He dwelt among us. Sounds pretty general, but let's get into the words. The word dwelt is another amazing choice by John here. 
He could have chose a lot of words, like he hung out with us, he was around us, he came to our world for a while. You see what I mean? He could have used a lot of words. He used the word dwelt, which literally means tabernacled. Comes from the Old Testament. When Moses led the people out of Egypt, and then they wanted you know, to have God's presence, and so God said, I'll tabernacle with you. The very first usage of tabernacle is in the Garden of Eden, where God tabernacled with His people. And then in Exodus, He tabernacled. He came and dwelt with His people. He's in the center of the camp, and there the presence of God was manifested to all the people. And so Jesus Christ tabernacled with us. Matthew said that His name should be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He tabernacled with us. You see, most people have a conception of Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for our sins. I think that's a pretty common understanding. Then lesser people have an understanding of Jesus being the priest, the one who offered, the high priest who offered on the Day of Atonement. But even less see Him as the tabernacle, the place where the sacrifice was offered by the priest. Do you see that? He's offering. He's priest. He's place. He's all of them. You see, Jesus Christ was not killed in the temple in Jerusalem. He was not drugged to a, to a tabernacle or to a synagogue some other place. In fact, He was drugged up a mountain that was not used for worship. He was drugged up the mountain of Golgothos where they, where they killed criminals. It was an outskirt of the city. He was drugged out in shame to an outside place. How can that sacrifice from God be accepted if it were not offered in the place where God accepts sacrifice? Because Jesus' own body was the tabernacle. He's the tabernacle now. You see, the tabernacle was the place where sacrifice was offered. Jesus Christ, not only the offering, but also the altar in which it was offered. And the priest that brought the offering. He's the whole thing. So when he said, it is finished, that's what he meant. It's complete. I've completed this. Offering. But the tabernacle was also the place where God's people came to meet and worship God. You see, you can't really declare the worth of God and worship Him unless you come into Jesus Christ. He is the heavenly tabernacle. There's a lot more on that, but that's His work. He was crucified, like I said, not in the temple or synagogue, but in Golgotha. Jesus was the true lampstand, the light of the world, the true bread of life or the presence. He was the ark that carried the covenant. He was the mercy seat that blood was sprinkled on, and it was His own blood that was sprinkled on that so that God could come down and sit on the mercy seat and meet with us. You see, Jesus is the true of the representation of the old. That's what's His work. He dwelt among us. The word among us there, this, this point is incredibly simple, but I'll give it to you because I think it matters, is that He was in His world and He was in His culture. I think this is really important for you to understand about Jesus is that he had a heavenly mission, but he was in his culture and he was in his world. He dwelt among us. He was one of us. You see, his pathway to full devotion of God to God was not escaping the world. He didn't believe in becoming a monk, if that makes sense. He didn't go out into the woods and say, I don't want anything to do with the world. I don't want to know anything about culture. I just want to go and be quietly devoted to God and not have anything to do with people. He dwelt among us. That's how he became devoted to God in his fullest sense. His teachings really reflect this. He talks about a sower. Where did he learn about farming? 
He talks about land being purchased in one of his parables. Where would he learn about that? He didn't own any land. How would he learn about that? He talks about weddings. He went to weddings. And he talks about vineyards and people owning vineyards and being entrepreneurial and having, having, you know, paying people for working. Jesus talked about all that. And I think he's always known as a very serious man. But unfortunately, he's always thought of also as a very solemn or like, you know, no fun to be around kind of guy. I can just imagine in Luke chapter 15, when Jesus is there with like tax collectors, sinners, and then also the Pharisees, and he tells the story about the shepherd, and everybody kind of maybe does the awe for the shepherd going out and getting the one sheep, you know, you feel for that sheep. But I think there's some humor in his second story about the woman that loses the coin and flips her house upside down. I really think there's some humor in that. I mean, how many of you can imagine sitting around and like, what woman would tear her house apart, right? In fact, and then when she calls everybody to come over, I wonder, like, did she clean her house? You, you know, because like when people go to my house, we go into like, you know, Armageddon mode. We just like, and start cleaning everything. And then you come and we're like, hey, we just have these dishes out on our table all the time, you know, and multiple forks, whatever. You know. I think he was, I think he had some humor. I think people chuckled like you just did there. I wonder sometimes what kind of parables he would use if he lived here. He probably would talk about football. He might talk about rivalries. He would talk about rat race and traffic on 33. You all know that, right? He would. And you would probably chuckle a little bit with that, and he would connect you to it, and then he would drive home the serious reality that it's not about temporary but eternal. He would. That's Jesus. He dwelt among the people, among us. The tense of that word us is specifically for those who are actually going to receive him. That's not a universal us. He didn't dwell among us all. He dwelt among us, those that receive him. Let's move on. Let's look at the response. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. To behold something is to wonder and amazement. You would use this word if you were looking at art or going to the theater and you would stare at something. You would gaze at something. You would spend time without distraction looking at something for the purpose to contemplate the meaning of something, the intent, the beauty. To see what's just beyond the surface. If you're looking at a beautiful painting, to see beyond the canvas or the material that's used. To look at the meaning of the artist and what they're trying to convey. That's what it means to behold. Jesus actually told us to live this way, to do this. In John 4, He said, lift your eyes. Lift them up. And look into the field and see the harvest is white. It's ready. What He was meaning is behold people. That person that drives you crazy at work is actually secretly whispering for ministry. Lift up your eyes and see. Behold that person. The difficulty in your neighborhood with your neighbors or the difficulty at work or with your family are little cries of heartache and misery and crying out for ministry. If we'll just stop looking at temporary and like Jesus said, behold something, lift your eyes. And see the cries for ministry. Look to the eternal. That's what Jesus told us to do. And I think it's becoming increasingly difficult for us to do this. We live in a world of 140 characters or less, right? On Twitter, that's all you can say. And we've got to move on to the next thing and the next buzz and the next story and the next heightened energy. And it's so difficult for us to gaze, to behold. When's the last time you've done it? 9-11, the TV? 
just stop and gaze? Maybe the newborn Andrew or Sadie, when you look at the fingers and you just stop for a minute, you're like, how did God make a fingernail that small? It's beautiful, right? When's the last time you've done that? You see, you won't get Jesus until you behold him. You won't. And if you want the soft, casual, fast food, likable Jesus, you won't get him. And we're going to see in a moment that you won't get grace and truth either. When's the last time you've beheld him? To dwell on him until you understand his significance. That he is the end of all dutiful work and religion, that he is the end of all sacrifice, that he is God in the flesh, that that's who he was, and that's who he is. To behold, what does he tell us to behold? His glory. This is another tricky word. It's found in the Old Testament, and what it means is to be heavy or weighty. Um, It is the ultimate reality, and everything in the world revolves around it. That's what the word glory means. And not in a selfish way, like self-centered glory, like look at me, but it's just, this is the ultimate heaviest reality. The best example I can give you is if you're, you know, maybe at work on Monday morning, and you're casually saying hi to people, and somebody, like one of your coworkers walks in, you're like, hey, how are you? And they go, not good. I've just lost my mother or father. And all of a sudden, what happens in the room, right? The weight comes down. And nothing else really matters except talking about that subject. That's glory. That's weighty. That means ultimately that's what matters most, okay? So when you look about this, when you think about that word glory being weighty, like the most important thing, and you go beyond the physical, you start to look at what's really inside Jesus Christ. What's real about him? That's what it means to have glory. And every one of you has glory. The problem is we glory in the wrong things. We glory in the wrong things. Whether you're a star athlete and you glory in what you've done, or you're you know, somebody else, you're glor- we, we glory in all the wrong things. And that's why people have such a hard time. And Jesus says that what really glory is, is what's real about us. What's real about who we are. The Bible says we've traded our glory. We've exchanged it. Okay, so what's real about Jesus? What's heavy about him? What's ultimate about him? Is that he is God. And that's heavy because God is the ultimate reality of this world. Jesus is the summation of all of God's attributes. He is wearing the veil of flesh. He's God in all of his attributes, wearing the veil of flesh so that we can actually look at him. Because if he didn't have that on, you and I would die if we saw the summation of God's attributes. We would die. Moses cried out to God for him to see him. He said, God, I want to see all of you. I want to see your glory. And God said, you'll die if you do, but I'll let you see my backside. So he covered his face and he walked by and he could see just the backside of God. Jesus comes in wearing the flesh. And we can see God. So him being the summation of God matters. It matters to you because he is the only path to your life being changed, to what the Bible calls transformation. Have you ever wondered how a historical person is supposed to change your life? And on top of that, like intellectually learning about a historical person 
changes your life. How does that happen? Like you've learned about maybe like, like um, great leaders of the world, maybe, maybe former presidents. You've learned historically about people, but it doesn't always change your life. Why does learning about Jesus Christ and gazing at Him change your life? Here it is. You see, to behold His glory, to gaze upon Him continually, and to contemplate Him for all of His meaning, to understand who He really is, is where your life starts to change. We often hear the phrase, WWJD, you've heard that before, what would Jesus do? And that's a good reminder, and people wear the bracelets sometimes. I don't know if they still do or not. But, but really, WWJD doesn't change your life. It doesn't. It's a good way to try to you know, control some behavior, and you know, sometimes you try to get people to do better things, so you look at your brace and say, what would Jesus do? And it reminds you to do better. But if you're a younger sibling, how well does that work? You know, your brother was better at this than you are. Do like him, right? It just makes you better, right, after a while. Let me tell you what really transforms. W-H-J-D. What has Jesus done? That will change you. W-W-J-D can motivate you to look back, but W-H-J-D will change your life. What has he done? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory, the reality of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That means restoring our glory as we gaze upon His glory. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the question then is this, what are we to behold? The glory of the Father. John finally says this, he's full of grace and truth. You know, as humans, we can usually do one or the other pretty well, either grace or truth. We can either tell people how it is, right, and let them know here's the truth, and then kind of doesn't go always go well, or we're good at grace. You know, if you're a parent, you know this, right? How many of you parents are like the grace ones, and the other one's the truth one, and then you kind of you know, don't always agree on that? And, or maybe you're grace one day and truth the other. It's hard to put those together. Jesus mastered this. He's truth, fullness of truth. That means that he knows you. I mean the real you, the deep down secret you that nobody else knows that you might even be too afraid to admit to yourself about who you are. He knows you. Does that cause you to tremble? Shake a little bit? In light of that truth of who he is, the Bible says he's full of grace. And that means that he loves that you. And he wants that you. And would die for that you. You see, the Bible says he's full of the truth. He knows you. And he's full of grace. He wants you. And he saves you. If you just get one of those, all of the truth of Jesus or all of the grace, it won't change you. In fact, it will either make you mooch off of Jesus or run from Jesus. But you put those together, the truth that he knows everything about you, every ugly thought, every ill motivation, he knows it, and he still wants you, that will change your life, transform you. So let's read this last scripture and we'll be done. Thank you for your patience tonight. I really appreciate that your willingness to listen. Verse 9 of chapter 1 of John says this. Where do we start? He says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, Jesus Christ. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. 
but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who gave, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. But these people were finally born of God. You see, where we start is receiving this Jesus, humbly receiving him for who he really is, not the one we want him to be, but who he really is, all of him, and praying continually that we might receive more and more of him and less and less of ourselves. If you're here tonight, you need to empty yourself to receive Jesus, to understand who he is, to gaze upon him, to realize that he's the word became flesh, that he dwelt, tabernacled among us, that he saved us, his work. And when you begin to behold his glory, you'll start to receive the fullness of his grace and his truth. And friends, that'll change your life. That's a worldview that'll change your life. We want to help you with that. You can come as we stand and sing.